You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Today's episode, King David Part 2, David and Bathsheba. As promised, after slaying Goliath, David was rewarded. For his unprecedented act of heroism, King Saul gave him his daughter Michal's hand in marriage. But more than he wanted Michal's hand in marriage, more than he wanted riches or fame, David yearned to make people laugh. Here's a joke, he would announce to anyone within earshot. A Canaanite, a Hittite, and an Amorite walk into a house of worship. We don't get many Amorites in here, says the rabbi. The Amorite strokes his beard thoughtfully. Then he answers, That's because the last one who dared enter was stomped to death in the doorway. For David, laughter was the one big holy, that which awakened the soul to the divine and the true. And in this case, what was divine and true was that Amorites were a lousy, despicable bunch. To be reminded of this in so surprising and jocular a manner was to slap one's knee with good cheer. After his whole performance with Goliath, David was no longer content to be funny through violence. Bopping a giant on the head with a stone and watching him collapse to the ground like a felled redwood was unevolved and unreliable. I mean, there was nothing wrong with a little slapstick. The old little guy bonking a big guy was a classic routine. But now David wanted to be funny with words. The only problem was that now that he was a military leader, he just never seemed to have the right opportunities for making mirth. On his wedding night, David told his wife, Michelle, a joke. Here's a joke. You know how old people always say how life goes by too fast? Well, people also say that when you're waiting in a line, it's as though time hardly moves at all. So why don't we make all the old people who are ready to die stand in line? Life will then pass so slowly that they might have the illusion of staving off death indefinitely. Michal did not respond, not with words, not with laughter. Several awkward minutes later, the newlyweds were presented with a spread of wonderful fruit slices, which they ate in silence. Whenever David told Michal jokes, she never laughed. The best he ever got was an, oh, that's cute, or a, you're so weird. Daughter of the king or not, thought David. The girl has no sense of humor. In short order, David became unsatisfied, and so in the evenings he played harp and tried to keep his eye on the prize. As the years wore on, he took several more wives, none of whom got him or his jokes. But one made a delicious whorehound spiced camel cheese, and another played a shofar that sobered him down to his toes. And so for David, that had to be enough. David was becoming the most popular and successful military chief in the king's army. He was clear-headed, confident, and able. So able, in fact, that as Saul started to get old, he chose David, rather than his own son, to succeed him. The passing of the crown was not a simple business, though. Saul could not help constantly trying to murder his would-be successor. The way your dad is always trying to kill me, David complained to Michelle. It's so undermining. It was only after trying to assassinate David for 30 days in running, one time by restringing his harp with poison vines, that Saul finally gave in to the whole We Love David vibe. After all, if the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him. 
And Saul, like everyone else, needed to keep on the Lord's good side. It just made good business sense. David proved to be a good king, and what made him so good was how little being the king actually meant to him. Even being a good king wasn't as important to David as being a funny king. And so, he tried to make jokes to the people, and the people laughed. But they laughed out of fear. David could tell. They laughed the way people had laughed at Goliath's jock humor. David dreamed of one day going out disguised among the citizenry to tell jokes, to hone his chops and see if he was really funny, rather than just scary. But he never seemed to have the time. There was so much to do as a ruler, and most of it was very unfunny business. That's what happens, he thought. Gone are the carefree days of killing giants. As you get older, you strip away the things that you don't have time for, and then you are left only with the things you have time for. Your life gets skinnier and skinnier, until you wonder why you go on. You go on because there are things that must get done. You become no longer a person, so much as a place, an unfunny place where things come to get done. And in this way, the place called King David lived his life. Until one day, while meditating on his roof, David's heart made itself known to him. He was standing on a palace balcony when he saw a woman bathing on the roof of her house. She was naked, except for her sandals, which somehow only made her seem more naked. She was the nakedest, most beautiful person David had ever seen. David's heart stirred. He said to himself, One day I shall marry this naked, sandaled woman who stirs my heart to life. When David's father had met his mother, that was how it had all started, with his father's simple pledge. David had always wanted to make a similar pledge to himself, but he never got the chance. When he was a kid, he used to look at girls while saying it under his breath, just for practice, for fun. But then his life went by, and he never got to say it for real. And now he was saying it for real. The only problem was, the woman on the roof was already married to a soldier in David's army, a Hittite named Uriah. David had missed his chance. Everything was too late. The woman's name was Bathsheba, and he did not know what it was about her. Maybe it was the way she bent over, her legs pressed so tightly together. Maybe it was a look on her face. The tip of her tongue stuck out, touching the bottom of her nose in concentration, like washing her leg was a very intellectual undertaking. Maybe it was the way her mouth always seemed just about to blossom into a smile in response to some joke, yet untold, that David would one day tell her. He was able to remember her face so well, too. There were some people he'd meet over and over again and still never be sure if he knew them or not. But her face was burned into him. When he closed his eyes, there it was, like the sun. In this way, David was made obsessed. And so at night, he thought about Bathsheba. He thought about every part of her. The idea that Bathsheba had something as mundane as common, as feet, as a pinky toe, was enough to make him swoon. From the roof he would watch her do laundry, and while looking at her face, 
he would think about her pinky toes, so human, so tiny and vulnerable. At night he dreamt her baby toe had come to life, freed of the body, all by itself, it comes to visit him. In the dream, he possessed a love for the toe that was stronger than any he had ever felt for anyone. If so offered, he would have given up his kingdom to lick the morning dew from under its nail. Unfortunately, no one was making such an offer. The day he appeared on her roof, he got there before she did. When she saw him, she did not drop her laundry. She just did this thing with her head where she turned it to the side and laughed, like she was embarrassed, like she had just been thinking about him, and the whole world knew what she was thinking. It was a weird thing she did with her head. It was spasmodic, like them just being in the same world together, breathing the same air, was too intense not to get the shakes. Are you here for Uriah, she asked. He knew Uriah would not be there. Uriah was away in battle. It isn't for Uriah that I have come, David said. Standing there talking with Bathsheba, David realized he had not been so exhilarated since his confrontation with Goliath. He was about to say, Here's a joke, for he had planned out in advance many jokes to tell, to get things started. But things started without jokes, and they started very suddenly. After they made love, David knew it had been the wrong thing to do, and he feared God's response. But it was too late. Bathsheba had become pregnant. What choice do I have now, thought David. Loyal Uriah had to be removed from the picture. This David knew. When David took Bathsheba for his wife, God was displeased. The prophet Nathan had told him, Heads up, this thing you did with Bathsheba? God hates it. A lot. It was the way David had gone about it, sending her husband Uriah to the front, to certain death, just to get him out of the way. In the first weeks of his illegitimate baby's life, David spent all of his day praying. He prayed so hard he felt like his head was going to explode. He prayed like he was a little kid, pounding on a door, screaming his head off. Then the pounding turned to scratching, and the screaming turned to hyperventilating. And still he prayed, folded on the floor, his chin pressed into his chest. When the baby died, he stopped praying. He didn't even say a prayer for the dead. And when those around him asked why, David asked back, What is the point? He had prayed to change God's mind, but now it was over, and no amount of prayer would change that. In David's grief, he became backwards-looking, spending a lot of time caught up in the old days, thinking about girls he had made laugh and giants he had slain. Bathsheba's father had been there the day David had killed Goliath, and he would tell Bathsheba about it. As a young girl, she never got tired of hearing the story. David and Bathsheba spent a lot of time talking about it, too. But after their child died, the tone of these conversations changed. When your father told you the story, David would say, did you find it funny? Funny, she asks. Funny how? Like a little guy bonking a big guy? I don't see what's so funny, she says. 
Maybe it was how your father told it, he says, while Bathsheba rolls her eyes. When he told it, David continues undisturbed. Did he say that David slayed the giant? Or did he say that David and God slayed the giant? Or did he just say that the giant was slain? Bathsheba tells him to stop dwelling. And David says that all of life is dwelling. Human history is dwelling. Without dwelling, there would be nothing. Bathsheba laughs. Then David laughs. Then Bathsheba stops laughing. But David continues to laugh. He continues still until Bathsheba tells him to shut up. She tells the king of Israel to shut up. David says that he doesn't like that, that he doesn't find that funny. David had always hoped that Bathsheba, unlike his other wives, might find him funny. But because of the rocky start to their marriage, there was never any room for jokes. David mostly kept to himself, spending a lot of time with his war souvenirs. He still kept Goliath's head on a shelf. You should think about getting rid of that thing, said Bathsheba. It's not the kind of thing you can get rid of, said David. It stinks, she said. I can't even clean near it without gagging. Bathsheba came to know David very well, and she used this knowledge to push his buttons. When you killed Goliath, Bathsheba asked, how much do you think God was helping? Did he use a pinky or did he use a fist? Hard to say, said David. I really had my eye on his forehead, right on the spot I hit. What the world saw as a single shot was really the product of years of great training. I heard that Goliath in his prime was a whole other story, she said. By the time you guys tangoed, he was fat from too much drink and obsessed with entertaining his troops with repartee. David nodded his head as though considering what she was saying. In his mind, though, he was pitching her off a roof. I heard that he really wasn't that bad, continued Bathsheba. Mostly talk, that he did a lot of work with lame Philistine children. It was all about timing. If someone called you a name, said that you were a bad king, cared more about committing adultery than ruling, you could pause a beat, pause two beats, or even three, Pause an entire evening of beats, even two days of beats. Then, after all your beats, show up at their door with an army and brain them with a stick. That is comedy, your face a grimace of satisfaction. But with your wife, all you have is what is in your mind. Because you know, Bathsheba continued, breaking his chain of thought, you're not just a little schmo when you have God on your side. When you stop and think about it, it was really poor godless Goliath who was at a disadvantage, no? Her body draped over your shoulders, slowly being lifted over your head, her sandaled feet kicking, and then over, off the roof and into sweet oblivion. These were not the thoughts of a funny man, and David did not want to be thinking them, but there they were, as real and powerful as his memories or his belief in God. David did not know what to say. Here's a joke, he said, his mind a complete blank.
I've been thinking about the Bible a lot lately and trying to wrap my head around what it would have felt like for men and women back then to have had such a personal one-on-one kind of relationship with God. Right. In trying to penetrate into the Bible in the way that you did and then writing about the experience, what was it, do you think, that you were trying to come to know? I grew up with very little religion. I Mm -hmm. have a very secular family. Uh, As I say in the book, I'm Jewish in the same way the Olive Garden is Italian. So not very. And so I wanted to know, what am I missing? Am I like someone who's missing a key part of being human, like going through life without hearing Beethoven or falling in love? Or is half the world deluded? So I decided that one way to approach it would be to understand the Bible from the inside, to try to live the entire Bible for an entire year, one year of living biblically where I would follow every single rule in the Bible from the the famous ones like the Ten Commandments right on down to the not-so-famous ones like that you cannot shave your beard. Because, you see, that isn't the leap that you know most people would make. You know what I mean? From saying, yeah, maybe I need a little religion in my life to saying I'm going to obey every single one of the hundreds of laws. It's true. I I have a bit of an obsessive personality. So this is my goal is to dive in head first. And this was actually an interesting teaching that a rabbi taught me right before I embarked on my mission. And he told me this great story of this guy named Nachshon. And Nachshon was with Moses when Moses went to the Red Sea. He was one of the Israelites. And we all think of the story of Moses parting the Red Sea, that he lifted up his staff and the sea just parted, sort of the Charlton Heston version. But according to this legend, that's not how it happened. What happened was Moses lifted up his staff and the sea just stayed there. And the Egyptians were advancing and things were looking bleaker and bleaker until... This guy, Nachshon, just a regular old Israelite, he just walked right into the water. And he walked up to his knees, up to his waist, up to his stomach, up to his neck. And then right before it got to his nostrils, the sea parted. So the lesson is that sometimes miracles only happen when you actually take the plunge. I bought a a literal stack of Bibles. So I had uh, Jewish Bibles and Christian Bibles, and a friend of mine sent me a hip-hop Bible, which uh, the 23rd Psalm is rendered as, the Lord is all that, as opposed to the Lord is my shepherd, which is more traditional. So this was greeted with a bit of skepticism from uh, the friends and family. I mean, my wife thought, on the one hand, it would be interesting because she's a little more religious, But on the other hand, there were things that absolutely drove her crazy. Uh, The beard, I mean, by the end, she she refused to kiss me for the last two months of the project. Wow, yeah, yeah. Paint a picture of of what exactly you looked like. Well, I had to let my beard grow because the Bible says that. So I, you know, ZZ Top, Moses, Abraham Lincoln, I got them all. I also wore only white because the Bible says in one part that your garments should always be white. You know, towards the end, I was really trying to get in character, so I had sort of a biblical staff. And and even in New York, which is filled with some odd-looking people, Mm -hmm. even in New York, I was able to 
get some people who cross the street to avoid me. And, and once, once you made the decision, was there a kind of um, simplicity or ease in just sort of like hanging up your regular beliefs and, and just completely uh, submitting yourself to, to all the laws of the Bible? Absolutely. I mean, on the one hand, it was incredibly hard because yeah. I, I had to follow all these laws about not eating certain things and wearing certain things. But yeah, as you say, there is something very liberating about not having to make as many decisions. You know, we always talk about freedom of choice, mm-hmm. but there's also something very appealing about freedom from choice. You know, on a, on a Friday night, should I go out and go to a nightclub? Not really. Uh, I should stay at home with the family. When I pass a homeless person, should I give them money? Yes, the Bible tells you that. So there was something very appealing about that. And wait, just going back to like uh, giving to anyone who has their hand out. I mean, you live in New York City. I mean, that, that it could become difficult to like walk down a city block what, with it without being approached by someone. Oh, and it's true. And actually, I, I decided to tithe, which was one of the harder parts of the year. And when you say tithe, that that's actually like that's bequeathing ten percent of your salary to, right. to, to charity. Ten yeah, percent. I did consult some experts on whether I could tithe after taxes or before taxes. But even after taxes, it's still a uh, it's a tough percent to reach. But these are good things you're talking about. I mean, was, was there any kind of like behavior that was uh, brought on by your your year of living biblically that you found kind of morally difficult for you? Well, absolutely. I, I mean, yeah, that was the, the strange thing about the year was on the one hand, I was doing this moral makeover and, and trying to become this better person and not covet and lie and gossip. But on the other hand, I was engaging in these really bizarre behaviors that were sometimes offensive like uh, stoning homosexuals and stoning adulterers. And, and so how did you manage that? I was able to stone one adulterer, and uh, it happened sort of in the middle of my year, and I was starting to look more biblical. Then I was in the park, and this man approached me and said, why are you dressed like that? And I said, well, I'm trying to follow all the rules of the Bible, from the Ten Commandments to stoning adulterers. And he said, well, I'm an adulterer. Are you going to stone me? And I said... Well, yeah, that would be great. And I actually took out a pocket full of stones because I had been carrying around stones for just this occasion. Uh, and they were small stones, I should mention. They were more in the pebble variety. But I, I figured the Bible didn't specify the size of the stone, so maybe this was my way of doing it. And the man grabbed the stones out of my hand and threw them at my face. So I thought in retaliation, eye for an eye, I could throw one back at him. And it was actually a, a surprisingly intense confrontation, because even with pebbles, no one likes to be stoned. And, and what happened at, at the end of the year? I mean, there wasn't, did you feel like, thank God, I can't wait to shave this beard? Or did you actually feel like you wanted to maybe continue living that way? Well, a little bit of both. It was a very bittersweet uh, feeling when the year ended, and it was was a real rocky transition back to secular life. I I felt that I had lost some sort of structure in my life. Mm -hmm. But I did, there are many things I've kept. 
I try to observe the Sabbath, mm-hmm. which I found was one of the best things about my year, mm-hmm. because I'm a workaholic, and, and having this day every week where you cannot work, where mm-hmm. you must spend it with your family, that was a, a great thing. Would you go so far as to say that you, you became a believer? Oh, what happened was I was praying for the first time in my life. I'd never prayed before, which was a very odd experience. Uh, as I say in the book, I, I had rarely said the word Lord without following it by of the rings. And here I was trying to pray in earnest for at least three times a day. And in the beginning, it literally made me sweat because I felt so uncomfortable. But by the end, I had uh, I had started to believe in the being to whom I was praying uh, because that was a big lesson of the years, how much your behavior affects your thoughts. I will say, I started the year as an agnostic, mm-hmm. and I went through the year, I went through all sorts of these permutations. At times, I was really believing in a loving and present God. But by the end of the year, I had reverted back to an agnosticism, but a, a very different kind of agnosticism, reverent agnosticism. Because whether or not there's a God, I believe in the idea of sacredness. And I still do say prayers of thanksgiving because the gratefulness and gratitude, but this was one of the huge themes of my year that really radically changed my perspective because instead of focusing on the half dozen things that go wrong, I was constantly thankful and and it made my life happier. On Wiretap Today, you heard Jonathan Goldstein reading the story of David and Bathsheba from his new book, Ladies and Gentlemen, the Bible. You also heard A.J. Jacobs, author of the book, The Year of Living Biblically. Wiretap is produced by Jonathan Goldstein, with Mira Bertwintonic and Carolyn Warren. Production assistance from Crystal Duhame. Tune into Wiretap Sunday at 1, 4 Pacific Time, and Wednesday evening at 11.30 reach us through our website at cbc.ca slash wiretap, where you can now listen to previous wiretap episodes online.